This week on The Rail Splitter, we're talking about the Battle of Vicksburg. Now, now, now. Not five, not four, not two, just three. The Rail Splitter, axe in hand, looking out at a frontier of hope and possibility. In excellent to each other. And party on, dudes! Welcome to the Rail Splitter Podcast, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me this evening are Rail Splitter Mary. Hey, Rail Splitters. And Rail Splitter Nick. What's up, Rail Split Nash? For all of you currently waiting in line at the grocery store, stocking up for the self quarantine, go back and put that third package of toilet paper away. You don't need to buy it. It's unfair to those of us who are lazy and get there late. I don't want to take a shower every time I drop a deuce. All right. Uh, well, all right. Welcome to the show, everybody. I think that's the first time that phrase has been yeah, used. Great. Maybe. I don't know. Um, so, yes, we are in the midst of the COVID-19 craze. We were just talking offline about what various portions of our employment are being canceled for it. So hopefully everybody is healthy and well and if you are quarantined, there's nothing better than a little podcast to keep you company. So hopefully um, everybody's feeling well, and if they're not, they're in quarantine with the rail splitters. Because, uh, you know, we hope we hope to provide some company for you. So today we're going to do uh, part one of uh, the Battle of Vicksburg. I think the coverage of this battle is going to be a little bit different because we're going to cover part of it. And then we're going to wait a while before we kind of offer you part two, uh, which kind of... Um, fits the whole battle because it's not a battle in the traditional sense as you will find out it becomes a siege and takes place over a long period of time uh so it's not exactly like a day one day two kind of thing like we could do with uh gettysburg or shiloh or various other battles so you'll get part one tonight or this week and then of course part two will come after you've been under siege or quarantined or however it may be for you um in the meantime, so um, we usually start with a news story about Abraham Lincoln or the Civil War that's kind of popped up in recent news. We don't really have one of those this week, although I did come across something. It's probably more appropriate for this week in Lincoln, but we'll talk about it now. Anyway, I came across a book um, at my child's school for parent-teacher conferences called All About Abraham Lincoln by Kennedy Boyce. If you can see here, my daughter made Aww. a... Yeah, so it's, uh, of course, I'm like, all right, don't start crying. Just just be cool. Just be cool. Looking at, uh, you know, my daughter had her, she's six, she's in kindergarten. Uh, she had her student-led conference in which she led us through all of her progress at school in kindergarten. And one of the things that they had done for President's Weekend was wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln. So um, and Nick knows a little bit of this. I shared a little bit of this um, at a faculty meeting, which I feel like it fit, but, you know. Yes, I'm the type of person who brings up Abraham Lincoln at staff meetings. Um, I, I thought it fit as well. Okay. We've been critical. Um, yeah, I thought it fit. <laughs> Believe it or not, Nick has been known once or twice to be critical of staff meetings. I know it's shocking. That is shocking. Really? <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, I, I will yes. say, and I've already told boys this, I, I thought our last sip day was our best one of the year and best one in a while. Um, it, it got a little exciting at the end. Um, but, yes, it was definitely – um, a, I thought a solid meeting. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I, I did a little bit of the presenting along with my colleague, and yeah, we kind of had a 
had a little emergency at the end, but everything worked out. So, uh, but anyway, the reason I talked about it, we were talking about um, equity and race and things like that and, and public schooling. And I was bringing this up because my daughter goes to a public school. They're learning about Abraham Lincoln in kindergarten, which is great. Um, but now I'm reading the story and I'll read it to you because uh, believe it or not, her kindergarten book that she wrote is not very long. It is adorable. It's illustrated by the author. Uh, page one says he saved a dog from a river. Not sure if that's true or not, but we'll go with it. That was in um, Young Lincoln. Okay. The the YA novel. And that's Uh, something Lincoln would do as well. It is. I think so. He's very much an animal rights person, so I'm fine with that page. Now, the second page I am not as fine with, um, and this is what I brought up in our meeting, and I'd be interested to hear the two of your take on it. Uh, The second page, the, the wording is, he saved the slaves. Um, which of course is, I feel pretty terrible wording because of course, Abraham Lincoln didn't, the slaves didn't need to be saved. Like as Abraham Lincoln says, you know, we are given rights by the, our creator, right? Like the declaration, as he was referencing the declaration of independence, you know, freedom can't be given. It can only be taken away. Um, but I, the, the reason I take issue with it is because it's like already kind of planting a seed for the, the white savior narrative as if, you know, you know, we needed a white male to kind of swoop in and and, and be the savior. Um, not taking anything away from Abraham Lincoln's accomplishments, but I just think that kind of that whole misinterpretation of um, abolition in the Civil War and the fight that enslaved people fought and enslaved people led in many ways, kind of or very much, gets overlooked, especially when we give all of the credit to one person who of course is a white male in this case. Um, so it's kind of like, Oh man, I don't really like that wording. So I'm kind of at a dilemma as a parent because I'm not a huge fan of that wording, but my daughter's also six and very proud of her work and is adorable. So I don't want to say like, actually, (laughs) (laughs) if you want to get more technical and accurate. Um, so I didn't say anything. But I would love to hear what your thoughts are on how this, like, this is the first seed of her Abraham Lincoln, well, not hers, but pretty much her classmates, Abraham Lincoln education. I, think- I say it's never too early for constructive criticism. You rip the page out and you make her redo it. <laughs> I'm just joking. I don't really believe that. Um, uh, no, I, I think it's kind of interesting. I, I think you bring up a good point. I guess I don't really know the answer because, you know, the reality is a lot more complex. You know, I've been talking a lot about this in class, too. We were comparing to Black Lives Matter and talking about All Lives Matter. And my argument was All Lives Matter is kind of, you know, constructed in this world of absolutes. Either you got it one way or the other, and there's no complexity to it. And then, obviously, being a six-year-old, that's probably how you take stuff and interpret stuff is this kind of, you know... Um, you know, these absolutes that, you know, that link, you know, it's hard to grasp that Lincoln, you know, played a role in getting the 13th Amendment and stuff like that. And that's very complex. Um, what's the appropriate level to sit her down and talk to? Man, I don't know. Um, you got an older child, you know, better than me on that. So I'm not going (laughs) to tell you that. But, um, it also goes into what we were going to talk about, I think, last episode. Um, when we were talking, we were going to talk about the 1619 New York times um, thing that they have, where they've kind of taken a 
um, look at uh, American history from 1619, which was, um, you know, when the first slaves came over um, from a more um, definitely well-rounded perspective. And there was an article there that was um, critical of Lincoln, especially with his colonization policies that he wanted to do. And I think it brings up some interesting discussions and how do you label Lincoln and what's the proper way to label Lincoln and stuff. And I think we're, especially in our society nowadays, we like these absolute labels. Like, you know, we think of a hero as a person who's flawless. Maybe we're getting away from that a little bit more. I don't really know where I'm going with this. I think I've ran on a tangent. So (laughs) at the end of the day, I don't know. I have to say, like, I I agree with Nick. I I really don't know how you would address that with a six-year-old. Um, because, you know, and I, I get the whole thing, like, you want to say, well, actually, mm-hmm. which would be my reaction. Like, if I had kids, I would be like, I probably would be like, okay, actually, no, let's word it this way and start, like, explaining everything to them. But then, you know, at the same time, I look at it like, okay. She's got one, like, you know, she's learning about him. Mm-hmm. And she knows that part of it, even if the language isn't what it, it needs to be or should be. Mm-hmm. That that she's starting to grasp that part of who mm-hmm. Lincoln was. I think as a parent, what I would try to do to think about is be careful of my word choice. For example, a lot of times, you know, when we talk about the 15th or 19th amendment, you know, they were given their rights. Mm-hmm. Well, no, they earned that. Like they went out there and you know what I mean? It, the civil war is what led to that. You know, the 19th amendment wasn't just like men were like, Oh yeah, you, here's your rights. And they were like, Oh, thank you. But, you know, it was, no, you, you they earned that it, word choice. I think could play a huge role in that and how you say that stuff. I know that might seem like a little thing, but I think that is, a bigger thing than we realize. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. And you make a good point. Like where, where are, you know, at what point can you really appropriately teach a child about enslavement, you know, like, and what it really was, you know, and how do you talk about oppression and all those things? And certainly it's not at six years old. So my issue with it wasn't exactly the nuance part of it is just like the, the word saved and, Mm -hmm. You know, it's like this very like there's like three people with huge smiles on their faces who all you know have a very similar skin tone in the in her drawing, which is you know it's all fine. I'm not her teacher is a lovely person. I'm not you know, but I, I think that it's more like an example of the systemic like where are these seeds planted? Yeah. And specifically when we were leaving, the next family who was coming in was was a black family who, in all likelihood, are were descendants or are descendants of enslaved people. Mm. How is that? six-year-old internalizing that message of of being saved you know of mm-hmm. needing to be saved or you know how how does that how might that play in and i don't know and i'm of course in no position to guess but it, it is worth thinking about so just kind of how we teach lincoln especially to our young people because of course he's a hero like this is why we have this show you know we we adore him perhaps more than we should to the point of obsession with having a show about him um, but I think it's important to note who he was and why he's a hero. He did everything. I believe he did more than anyone else ever has or ever did with his position and his privilege and his ability. I idolize him because I don't think it's appropriate for me to, to try to look up to someone else. Like, you know, he, 
we share enough where I can look at him as a hero. Whereas I don't feel I could look in the same way at like Dr. King because I don't experience oppression like that. So this has nothing to do with the battle of Vicksburg, but it's kind of just an interesting thought process that I had. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. So I'd love to hear everyone's uh, thoughts on it Uh, to round out the book, uh, the the rest. And there's one other issue I have with it, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, He is on the $5 bill and the penny. Uh, He was very tall. (laughs) And then the last page, he was shot at a play. <laughs> oh. So, yep, that that's the book from start to finish. Wow. Um, yeah, so I would have to say only... getting into Abraham Lincoln when I was about your daughter's age. Yeah. I remember somebody asking, or no, my grandma asking me, so, you know, who was he? And I was like, he was the president and he got shot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I mean, so if you look at the individuals who are drawn in this, it is Abraham Lincoln, uh, two enslaved people, a dog, and John Wilkes Booth. Oh. What's so the I, drawing for the John Wilkes Booth? I want to see that. Graphic. Uh, I don't really, it's not that graphic. I mean, you can just, there's like two figures and oh, Abraham Lincoln's label. Oh, it actually label. does kind of look like <laughs> I like, and Booth has like a, looks like a cape of some sort on, so I have to think there was some sort of visual that she, that she was going on and of course booth has this huge grin and lincoln has the frown because apparently you frown when you get shot in the back of the head um of course so yeah no mention of mary lincoln no mention of any other specific yeah. individuals so anyway well i think that brings up an interesting point too like the books that you buy for your kids are so important mm-hmm. um and like representation at that age too because you know, I've been thinking a lot about like the kid I get junior year and how much mm-hmm. they've already developed by that time mm-hmm. and how it could be difficult to kind of erode away some of the false misconceptions that they have of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's an important thing for elementary teachers, which I'm sure all of them think about mm. um, or hopefully all of them. Um, is this uh, how are things represented in these books that you get? Because I think mm-hmm. that plays a huge role. That's that's yes. true. I've I've actually been wanting to um, do an episode about um, kids' books about Abraham Lincoln because I I do buy them when I find I will look at kids' sections at you know Barnes and Noble or you know in here in Canada I'll go to Indigo which they're not as likely to have them but still I've amassed a few kids' books about Lincoln and it's interesting to see you know how they portray him in those books. And I still have all the ones that um, my aunt and uncle picked up for me at Gettysburg back in, it would have been the mid eighties when they were getting them. So they're Mm -hmm. mid eighties national park books for youth about Abraham Lincoln. I'm sure the language has changed a little bit in 30 some years. Yeah. Yeah. I think for sure. So it's always fascinating to just talk about how we got exposed to Lincoln 30 years ago. Oh, it's not much different now. Maybe it will be. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't remember kindergarten exactly, <laughs> but I'm sure that there was something like that kind of um, that's, you know, it lit a spark, right? It lit a spark, mm-hmm. you know, for Mary, it lit a spark for Nick, it lit a spark for me in similar but different ways. Um, so who knows what creates history buffs and, and, you know. I think the Rail Splitter podcast is, I'm sure there is a five-year-old who listened to me 
used a phrase I did to start the show, yep. who will now grow up to be a Lincoln historian. Yes. Yeah, because you made him laugh. He's like, that guy said deuce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Poop humor. I like yes. this guy. I like this guy. <laughs> so moving on. <laughs> uh as important, or arguably as important as the the battles that we seem to kind of gravitate toward, many of us, uh, at least us Yankees, uh, we like the, the the drama and the stories of Gettysburg and Antietam and Manassas and and even Shiloh and places like this. But probably as important or as pivotal to those battles, and maybe all of those battles, is the Battle of Vicksburg. And I think that often gets overlooked and misunderstood uh in many different uh, ways um i feel like i don't understand it very well so i'm looking forward to today's show to learn a little bit myself uh because I, i've been to vicksburg and it was still kind of difficult to get your mind wrapped around what happened um i think the military importance of it of course is a little bit easier to understand based on where it is and what happened afterward uh, but Mary and Nick, of course, uh, they they handle the heavy lifting on the Civil War battle episodes much more than I do. So that's why I'm here to ask the questions. Uh, so why don't uh, Mary or Nick? I don't know who would like to start, but take us through uh, the, the the Battle of Vicksburg. How are we gonna how how are you gonna present this to us? Okay, well, this is actually it's a it's a series of battles and what will become known as the Vicksburg Campaign, and like. Like Jeremy said, it, it's it's complicated and it is difficult to understand. And, you know, I've done a lot of reading about it recently and research, and I still, I don't feel as confident talking about it as I do about, uh, you know, Chickamauga, Chattanooga, and Gettysburg. It's it's a very complicated battle, and I, I just had a thought that, like, you know, Vicksburg was complicated for Grant, like... Grant, it was a very much a trial by fire for him. There's failures that happen um, in this campaign with these battles and with the different expeditions that happened. And it's um, it's definitely one of the harder ones to understand. It is in the Western theater, which often, you know, the Eastern theater seems to overshadow a lot. And I think that's just proximity. It's geographic playing into it. Um, news is getting quicker to D.C., because of that and getting quicker to Lincoln, getting quicker to the major newspapers in New York City and all that. Um, but what we wanted to do with this was cover it in two episodes, one right now and then one quite a few months from now in July, um, just because the campaign is long and drawn out. Um, so this episode, um, we're going to talk about the background leading into this campaign and the battles. Um, and we're going to cover the operations against Vicksburg and Grant's Bayou operations. And in part two, we're going to look at Grant, what are called Grant's operations against Vicksburg, the siege, Pemberton's surrender, the aftermath. So what that means, gaining control of the Mississippi River. Um, There's a lot of emancipation of slaves that goes on um, in this campaign, too, because um, I think it's 55% of Mississippi's population is slaves. They are very plantation heavy in this state. Um, and that actually, I think, includes Jeff Jefferson Davis's brother had a plantation near Vicksburg, actually, I think. Um, and we're going to look at the importance to Vicksburg when it comes to the study of the Civil War as well as Lincoln. And it often does get overshadowed by Gettysburg. And I'm not downplaying Gettysburg by any any means, but Vicksburg is very strategic for um, 
it's kind of creates this domino effect that, uh, you know, leads to the end of the Civil War. And for for Lincoln, Vicksburg is extremely important, too. Um, So in this campaign, there's naval operations, troop maneuvers, failures. There's drama and infighting, because what is a Civil War battle or campaign without some drama and infighting? Um, And there's 11 different battles that happen from December to July 4th. And um, it's in Mississippi. It's right along the Mississippi River, which is why it's so important, just like Chattanooga was, right along a river. And um, it's also the busiest, um, it's a busy major rail center. The Southern Mississippi Railroad extends from Vicksburg and passed through Jackson, Mississippi. It connected the western portion of the Confederacy to the eastern. And it serves as a main supply line for not only food, but getting soldiers from the west. If the Union captures Vicksburg, this supply is cut off and you start to sever the Confederacy in two, which is exactly what Lincoln wants. Um, And it's the last major Confederate stronghold on the Mississippi River. And Miller, in his recent book about Vicksburg, um, says it's a fortified town on commanding bluffs above the Mississippi River. It was the last obstacle facing Union forces struggling to regain control of the Great River of America and split the Confederacy in two, separating Arkansas, Texas, and most of Louisiana from the secessionist states in the east. And it's very, like, it had lots of shops, there was a theater, there's excellent public and private schools, there's six newspapers in Vicksburg, which seems kind of like, for that time, seems kind of crazy. And there's a bookshop and a reading room, but um, it's also a very violent place, too. So it's like any city. I think, like, Baltimore was quite a violent place as well at that time. And um, of the importance of Vicksburg, Abraham Lincoln said, Vicksburg is the key. The war can never be brought to a close until that key is in our pocket. And so, like I said, if it's captured, there's a chain reaction that starts. And Lincoln is also quite fascinated with this campaign, because as we're going to see, there's a lot of different engineering that happens. Don't mind you, sometimes it's not very good engineering. But he's quite fascinated with that. And that's one of the reasons, I mean, besides the fact that he needs to follow his campaign closely, because it's going to be make or break for the Union. But he's following it closely, too, because there's so many different engineering things that are happening. Um On the Confederate side of things, uh, Jefferson Davis said that Vicksburg is the nail that holds the two, holds the South's two halves together. It's the Gibraltar of the Confederacy because of the natural defenses of the city, located on high bluffs. Um, It's got a horseshoe-shaped bend, and it's basically impossible to approach by ship. And the surrounding terrain is difficult to navigate. There's bayous, um, like just swamps. It's untamed wilderness. It's a lot kind of like the area, like, you know, like Shiloh was not an ideal place to fight a battle. Vicksburg is not only, it's not ideal for a battle. It's also not ideal for moving troops, for doing a campaign, for any of that. It's just, it's impossible. And um, as I said, over 55% of the population in Mississippi is slaves. Yeah, and that's that's key, I think, too, especially with how you look at how Mississippi develops over time. And, you know, I, I do think it's interesting, too, to kind of look at the difference, the differences between the states in the Confederacy and what their population was. And I think that that kind of really 
um, solidifies like how um, or why they fought so strongly because you know if enslaved people get citizenship and votes and they're fifty percent of the population doesn't take too much to tip that balance of power which of course people are holding on to very very strongly yeah and it's you know as i said it's the key to breaking the confederacy as well um and it's not the first so so what grant is about to do in this campaign is not the first time that vicksburg has been under attack from union forces um admiral david farragut who um nick would you agree that Farragut and Porter, they need an episode. <laughs> yeah, a lot you- of these Navy guys, um, because me and Mary are both reading the same book. Um, where did it come from? Donald Miller's Vicksburg book. And, uh, yeah, and just knowing a little that I do about them, they are fascinating individuals, um, and they are definitely characters. But, yes, I would agree with that 100%. Yeah, I think Farragut, he's damn the torpedoes, right? Yeah, in Mobile mm-hmm. Bay, and uh, I, it, I was surprised when I read it that they were both very arrogant. Like I had not suspected that I had sort of suspected it about Farragut from what I knew about him, but Porter, I was thinking, oh, he looks kind of like a nice guy, probably pretty mild mannered. No, no, apparently they were both very like headstrong, arrogant individuals. Um, so Admiral Farragut, he. Um, he was the one that captured New Orleans, which is also very important. And he demanded the surrender of Vicksburg on May 18th, 1862, but he didn't have enough troops to face off against the rebels that were there. And uh, James Autry, who was the Confederate commander at Vicksburg, said to Farragut, I have to state the Mississippians don't know and refuse to learn how to surrender to the enemy. And that's basically going to become the tone of the campaign until July the 4th, 1863. Um, so Farragut tries again, and, uh, there's some shelling of the city that happens in July of 1862, and there's an attempt to dig a canal that fails, but that canal is going to come back, uh, in a little bit. And, uh, so basically the first attempt to take Vicksburg is, I had in my notes here, it's a bit of a cluster. I'm not going to say the word. (laughs) (laughs) It does not, it, it's just not, it's very, not, not good at all. Um, yeah, and another thing too. I think a lot of times we think of Vicksburg. And I don't know how many people. I always still gravitate to you know the army aspect to it, mm-hmm. but a lot of Vicksburg is a naval campaign. Mm-hmm. And and Donald Miller's book, he does a great job and spends a lot of time talking about what he kind of calls the Mun Navy, um, this navy who's working on the Mississippi rivers and the river systems, and the, especially the beginning here and a lot of what we'll talk about throughout Vicksburg. It's really you know, part naval battle, part army as well. And it's really fascinating. It made me appreciate and think a lot more about, you know, the Civil War guys that are working on these ships during that time um, and were part of kind of this Navy. And it's something that I don't think it's talked about nearly enough when it comes to the Civil War. Um, And we always kind of just think of the, the, you know, the big sexy battles between a couple ships. Um, But, yeah, I mean... During some of these battles and some of these shellings, I mean, it had to be hell on those ships mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, receive some of that cannon fire and also to send it the other way. Yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, it's pretty natural when you think Navy or naval battle not to think of rivers. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just think of all the maneuvering that would go, you know, come into play during a naval battle at sea. 
when you've got a river, I mean, granted the Mississippi's a, a wide river, but still, I mean, you, you basically kind of like you were saying, it's a shell. Like there's no, there's no outmaneuvering. Like you're going to, to take fire and you're, and you just got to hope to inflict more than you take, or you, you're You're just trying to take care of, you know, take a bombardment as you're trying to, to take it, take out a fortified position. So, um, yeah, I think that that, it's just rare, you know, in, in modern wars and, and really um, there wasn't a lot of river battles in any other war just because of the way that, you know, things just the way the ge- geography of war. So um, I do. Th- yeah, I, I agree. I find that fascinating. And it's a very key part to Vicksburg, um, especially because that's that was the point. It was, the river was the objective. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily the, the fortification or the town. It was control of the river. Yeah. And that's the one thing I learned from reading Miller's book, too, is like, it was very much this kind of this joint effort. And I had never, I don't think I'd ever thought of it that way before. But Miller's book, he, as Nick said, he does an excellent job of bringing the Navy into it and their importance in this campaign. And um, so it's not just the Navy that's involved. I mean, obviously, the, the Army is involved, too. And it's in November of 1862, that Halleck is, he's now commander in chief of all armies. Um, he tells Grant that he wishes for him to make a major move on the Mississippi River down to Vicksburg. And by this point, you know, Grant's got Forts Henry and Donaldson under his belt. He's making a name for himself. So he's, he's the man to probably do this. And uh, Grant marches his army down the Mississippi Central Railroad and they make their base at a place called Holly Springs. And he's planning a two-pronged assault, which is exactly what Lincoln is envisioning for this. And um, so Grant starts with, um, he's got the Army of the Tennessee. He starts with 44,000 men, but will end up with 75,000 by the time of the surrender. And other other notable Union men in this battle are, um, of course, Sherman, (laughs) Um, General McPherson, who's also from Ohio, Uh, General John A. McClernand, who will become a thorn in Grant's side. And just a little side note, he actually was, he's kind of friends with Abraham Lincoln, so he thinks he's got a bit of an in. He's going to become what um, Ronald C. White says Grant's uh, managerial headache throughout this campaign. Um, There's also uh, General Caldwater Caldwater C. Washburn, General John G. Park, who joins in mid-June, and... um, as I said, there's going to be a bit of a dispute between Grant and McClernand um, throughout this campaign. There always seems to be drama on either side in any campaign or battle. On the Confederate side of things, um, it's General Pemberton and the Army of Mississippi that is at Vicksburg. Pemberton's interesting. He's actually a northerner from Pennsylvania, um, but he married a southerner, and that's why he ends up fighting for them. And... Um, Pemberton's northern birth and upbringing, along with his lackluster service record, made him a strange choice to command the only Confederate army protecting Vicksburg. Uh, That's what Miller has to say about him. But from what we know about Jefferson Davis and when it comes to who he picks to command his armies, um, especially in the Western theater, this isn't surprising, considering he kept Braxton Bragg in after the Battle of Chickamauga, even though some of his generals had signed a petition saying... This man should not be in charge. Please find somebody else. And Jefferson Davis was like, no, it's fine. He can keep leading you guys. Um, so Pemberton, like many of the generals, is educated at West Point. He served in the Mexican War. 
He had most recently been relieved of his command in the coastal defenses of um, Charlton, Charleston, South Carolina. And um, he was said to be confused and uncertain about everything. And his loyalty to the Confederacy was also questioned. Um, a Charleston diarist, Emma Holmes, said, as he is a Pennsylvanian, he engenders suspicion. Many even suspect treachery. Um and Jefferson Davis sends him in to replace Earl Van Dorn, who had been commanding the Army of the Mississippi. Um, Van Dorn had a poor performance at Corinth and so had been called before a court of inquiry and replaced by Pemberton. He's got 30,000 men. Part of his army is at Jackson, and the rest is at Granada, which is 150 miles south of Vicksburg. And he's also got General Loring, General Stevenson, General Smith, and General Bowen with him, too. Pepperton is kind of fascinating character. I guess he went with his heart where his love was. Mm. That didn't pan out too well for him, though. Nope. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking day. about some, you know, bros and something. I was just saying it wasn't going to come out right. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's so like I was just kind of thinking as you were going to kind of go through that cast of characters, like, like it, it always fascinates me just like how many leaders emerged you know, in this war and like, it always like, there's no real way to kind of, I mean, I suppose you can read, you know, get contemporaneous, you know, accounts or whatever, but like how well known certain individuals were and how well known they are to history now. Like, you know, I think like Farragut's damn the torpedoes line made him probably more famous now or more, more known. Like he's known as like the Navy guy from the civil war because he said that, you know, so it's like how this happens and like how we know Jeb Stewart, you know, most people know Jeb Stewart more than like Braxton Bragg or, you know, like, I don't know, that always fascinates me in this Vicksburg, you know, you get this confluence of so many, like basically most of the Navy people, you've got Grant there, but like, it doesn't like, it's, it just doesn't really emerge as this like important battle, even though it was arguably, yeah, I think you can make a pretty compelling argument that it was the most important battle, at least in, you know, posts, you know, the first battles were, of course, important for different reasons mm -hmm. as, you know, it was kind of becoming clear what the war was going to be and what it was going to be about. But like, as far as decisiveness, there's not, I don't know if there's any battle that, that would upstage it other than arguably Gettysburg. Well, from a military standpoint, I would argue this is more important than Gettysburg. Oh, me too. Now, the political you know significance of gettysburg you can maybe make the argument but um yeah I, I agree with that too like it's completely overshadowed most people don't think like most people probably know shiloh better than vicksburg yeah. or antietam better than vicksburg and then also another thing which we're going to talk about is like we just assume i think a lot of people think grant grant out west he's a stud everything he did he yep. touched was gold success 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 what we're going to see in Vicksburg is the complete opposite, actually. It's failure, 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 and then learning and learning from that and finally getting it done. Mm -hmm. And it is funny how history is written, I guess, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and what gets significance. Part of that is probably because the West isn't as developed. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure we could dive into all that. I think we have in other episodes. But, yeah, I agree with you. It is always fascinating to what we remember about a person um, through a historical lens. And I have to say, yeah, as, uh, yeah. somebody who studies the Western theater a little bit more than the Eastern theater at times, you know, these the the men there are becoming kind of like 
they're becoming like my general meads and and warrens and all that that i'm i'm really getting to know who they are because i do see the the western theater as being kind of underlooked and i i like to have give it a little bit more of a voice because i think there's a lot of strategic stuff that happens out there that to lincoln was so important that you know he sees vicksburg as being the key he sees chattanooga as being as important as richmond so you know there there definitely were to, were strategic things happen but because the east you know as i said geographically it's easier to get news there you know it's like boys you might be able to relate to this it's like when the bulls were good and then I thought about like the Western Conference. I'm like, oh, I kind of know these guys. All right, <laughs> yeah. the Lakers are kind of good. Utah's kind of good, and then we play them. And be like, oh, okay, yeah. And then, but like you knew the Eastern Conference inside and out. That's what it reminds me of, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Or like, yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree. Or like in music or something. Like everybody knows the lead singer, but they are terrible without their band. You know, like yeah. you know, like the it's just it's just sexier or more glamorous to to look at you know just the huge scale eastern battles that are like so close to richmond or so close to washington or you know lincoln was was almost there or could have been there or you know had had i mean there's more probably known about mcclellan not attacking or not doing things than there is about all of those heroic battles in the west um so yeah, I think that it's it's just fascinating to me how like everyone looks to Lee and looks to Grant only in the West. Like they don't look yeah. at Grant. I mean, I'm not saying our listeners do. And like, please, I, I know a lot of our listeners are probably thinking like, "What are you talking about? I know this. I know that. we're not talking about you, but I just generally speaking." And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, like how we learn about the Civil War. Like when I was a kid, I live in Illinois, which is you know West. It was the West then. And, like, I remember, like, trying to learn all I could about the Civil War, and I did not, you know, I didn't even know where Chickamauga was. I never read about, I mean, it was all, you know, the Manassases and Antietam and Gettysburg and, you know, of course, Lincoln. But, so, yeah, I think it's important to, to really to really dive deep into it, and, I, and I'm glad we're doing it with Vicksburg. Um, and I think the general's good and bad. Um kind of get overlooked a lot yeah and i mean i gotta agree with what nick says too you know no grant is seen as kind of this stud when he comes to to the east but in the west and in vicksburg it is really like a it's a trial by fire for him as we're gonna get into that uh there's like mistakes were made Mm -hmm. you know for whatever reasons and he learns from them and he bounces back and he obviously you know, like after Chattanooga, we see that he he goes east and he takes command of all the armies. And um, so that's where, like, the battles... Um, so what we're going to start with is these battles in operation against Vicksburg, which are December to January. So um, there's two, Chickasaw Bayou, we're also called Chickasaw Bluffs, as well as Arkansas Post. And the Battle of Chickasaw Bayou is from December 26th to the se- December 29th, 1862. Um this is that two-pronged assault that I mentioned earlier. So Sherman would command an expedition down the Mississippi River, and Grant would approach overland, and they would attack the city from two different directions. It's kind of like Fredericksburg. It's beautiful on paper, you know, but there's so many things you have to take into account. 
you know, like, where's the enemy going to be? Um, what's going to be happening? And there is so much that gets thrown at Grant that, um, you know, this does just not pan out how it should. Um, so on December 20th, 1862, Sherman departs Memphis, Tennessee with 20,000 men, and he's going to travel down the Mississippi River with four divisions. Grant is going to move south and march along the line of the Mississippi Central Railway and attack Vicksburg from the east. Meanwhile, at Holly Springs, where he has all the Union supply lines, there's a bunch of stuff that's about to go down. Um, Earl Van, General Earl Van Dorn, formerly commanding the Army of the Mississippi at Vicksburg, now leading a cavalry, attack Holly Springs. They destroyed shops, depots, and warehouses. They set fire to the three-story Masonic building, which exploded in flames, and proceeded to burn down the entire north side of the town square. They capture 1,500 Union troops and destroy much of the Union supplies there. So Grant's supply base has been destroyed at Holly Springs. Um, yeah, he, he was just—he was really careless, kind of with the supply line, mm-hmm. and then and then. Yeah, he just became careless with it. You know, as Miller says in his book, Grant gambled and yeah. lost a lot yes, in this. He did. Um, so not only is Van Dorn attacking Holly Springs, but you have Nathan Bedford Forrest ripping up railways in Tennessee, and this would hinder Grant from getting his supplies back to Holly Springs. And Forrest raiding is going to destroy telegraphic communications from Jackson, Tennessee, to Columbus, Kentucky, and he's doing everything he can to get Grant out of the Mississippi. And he's doing this with, I think, around 2,000 men. Like, Forrest does not ever have that many men with him at a time. Um, Grant was thinking he had a lot more, but it turns out he didn't. And Grant said that of what Forrest and Van Dorn's raids had done, they cut this cut me off from all communications with the North for more than a week, and it was more than two weeks before rations or forage could be issued from the stores obtained in the regular way. Um, and then Ed Bears had this to say about Forrest and Van Dorn. Van Dorn. Oh, say it like Ed Bears. Say it just like him. Ed Bears. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. How does he say? If it? only we could. <laughs> I probably couldn't do it. John Brown, (laughs) John Brown. Hopefully we were on here. (laughs) For the first and only time in the Civil War, Calvary and Calvary alone was the decisive factor in a major campaign. So Calvary was what breaks this part, this first part of the Vicksburg campaign for Grant. Um, And they did it with fewer than 6,000 men. And as I said to... A few minutes ago, Grant had gambled greatly and lost. Um, That's what Miller says about it. And he'd blundered badly in planning the Mississippi invasion. So Grant's not going to be able to help Sherman with the two-pronged assault. And Sherman doesn't know this. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) Drama between our two guys. I know, yeah, he doesn't know it. Sherman doesn't know it. Um, So in his retreat, because he's got to go back... Mm-hmm. Grant and his army end up forging off the land, and in doing so, he realizes that his men are eating surprisingly well. And um, one of these men would later be on Sherman's march through Georgia, and he describes that what is happening at this time is what Sherman's bummers end up doing on the march to the sea. So there's things happening in the Vicksburg campaign that 
carry forward into the Civil War. They're starting to plant the seeds there for what is going to happen in a couple years. Um, Sherman, meanwhile, he's heard reports that Van Dorn's raiders had cut the telegraph lines, but they weren't confirmed or about Van Dorn's raids. But because telegraph lines had been cut, that's not confirmed. So he's going forward business as usual. He's thinking Grant is going to, you know, go. He's going to be there to meet him. And that he, Grant, would keep Pemberton's army behind the the Yalabusha River away from Vicksburg. And then on December 23rd, Grant tries to warn Sherman via courier that he's unable to help him. And the courier never does reach him. So Sherman's basically heading into um, what Miller calls a trap at this point. And um, meanwhile, in Vicksburg, the Confederate defenders move as many troops as possible to the high ground north of the town known as Walnut Hills. And they dig in and they build a solid defensive position. And there's 19,000 men there that are waiting for Sherman. Yeah, not good. It's like uh, me going, hey, yeah, I got your back. Let's go kick this guy's ass. And I don't show up and you got to do it yourself. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. I can't imagine how Sherman was when he was like, oh, where, where's Grant? <laughs> I guess I got to go attack these guys now. And then on top of that, they're dug in in a nice defensive position, to which, especially in the Civil War days, gives you the huge advantage. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think we, not to give spoiler alert here, but uh, I think we know how this is going to play out. Yeah, Sherman, on December 26th, he arrives at the mouth of the Yazoo River which runs parallel to the Walnut Hills. And um, his troops have to advance toward the Confederates along narrow causeways, or they have to wade through swampland. It's the winter. This isn't great. Um, It's almost impossible to fight in. And uh, the map that Sherman had um, didn't show the terrain. And uh, this is not the first time... We saw in the, the the battles for Chattanooga how maps failed Sherman. Maps are about to fail him here because he doesn't see the terrain. Um, so there's a bit of skirmishing that happens on December 27th and 28th. And on the 29th, um, Sherman still hasn't heard from Grant. He's assuming he's making his way to Vicksburg. And he launches a full-scale assault. He begins with artillery. It does little damage. And this is where Sherman says we will lose 5,000 men before we take Vicksburg and we may as well lose them here as anywhere else. And moving forward was chaotic because of the landscape. And Robert O'Connell in his book, Fierce Patriot, which is a biography about Sherman, he says in repeated attacks, they were shot to pieces, losing 1,800 men compared to the rebels 200 before Sherman mercifully became convinced that the part of wisdom was to withdraw. So then he's got to withdraw his men. Obviously, there's heavy casualties, and he realizes that the Confederates have a very strong defensive position, and he decides not to attack again. And he realizes that Grant is not going to get there. And there was a private from Ohio. His name was Charles Wilson. He was 16 years old when he fought in the battle. And he said, no engagement in which I was afterward involved impressed me with the nightmarish sensations of this one. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy, too, because I think another misinterpret, not to keep talking about how people misinterpret this battle, but like 
you think of a siege and you think they don't like there's only hardships on one side and that it's just like boredom on the other but there's hardships i mean like grant you know living off the land and struggles and all that kind of stuff i mean that's another indication of like that this was a very complex battle that wasn't just the simple siege where like we'll, we'll wait it out you know there was so much more to it yeah and so the battle of chickasaw bayou obviously is a failure on the union's part um but that leads to arkansas post which is january 9th to 11th of 1863 and it's twenty-eight thousand union versus five thousand confederate so they basically got this in the bag um it was sherman's plan but it was conducted by general mcclernand who really doesn't other than kind of telling sherman yeah this is okay you can do it doesn't really have much to do with this battle um and it's a move upon fort hindman which is a rebel garrison and 5,000 prisoners are taken in this battle, but many of them were already near death from disease. And it was the largest surrender of Confederate troops west of the Mississippi River prior to 1865. Um, And Miller tells us that the capture removed the only remaining threat to federal communications on the Mississippi between Memphis and the Yazoo, giving the Union a secure supply line for future operations against Vicksburg. So it's significant in that way. Um, the Union suffered just over a thousand casualties, and the Confederates nearly five thousand, almost all by surrender. Um, but after the battle, McClernand is Sherman spots him on his um, he's on his ship and he's toasting himself and he's saying, <laughs> "Glorious, glorious, my star is ever in the ascendant." And um, this operation was, although it was Sherman's plan, it's conducted without Grant's approval. So this seals McClernand's fate. Um, Porter and Sherman at this time approach Grant and they tell Grant that McClernand's incompetent. And Grant sends word to McClernand that he's going to be sent back to a place called Milliken's Bend, which limits his command. So McClernand writes to Lincoln and says, do not let me be destroyed, which Lincoln responds, I have too many family controversies, so to speak, already on my hands to take up another. And I think the family controversy he's referring to is the fact that he has um, his wife, Mary, her um, half-sister is with them, and her husband had been killed at the Battle of Chickamauga, and she had come across Union line or, like, the lines, and she was staying with them, and people had found out about that and were not too happy that Lincoln was hosting a the wife of a Confederate general at the White House. And McClernand will continue to be Grant's management headache, as described by wife or White, White throughout the Vicksburg campaign. Damn that McClernand, almost as worthless as McClellan. Yeah, a funny story about that. So there was one um, morning that, I don't know, I said to Jerry, I'm like, hey, I'm reading about McClernand right now. And he thought that I was talking about McClellan, except in that Ermagerd. <laughs> <laughs> So he comes out, he's like, Irma Gerd, I'm George McClernand. And I'm like, I said, no, no, actually, his first name's John. And then I realized, I was like, oh, you think I'm talking about McClellan? <laughs> that's pretty good. So that's kind of a joke between us now. Um, so the fine. Yeah, McClernand was kind of a political appointment 
yeah. he, he anyway so um and yeah he's uh he's often included on lists of like top 10 worsts and things like that mm-hmm. but there's a school named after him in springfield so there's that wow what did you think of him nick when you were reading miller's book as a clown yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's one of those political generals who thinks he knows more than what he does. Um, annoying. Tries to, you know, pull the the Lincoln card when he can because he's got the connections. So, you know, it's one. Yeah, he just he's one of them. Like this happens a lot in the Civil War. We hear about the political generals who are just in over their head. They become a headache for you know. Um, you know whether the guy, the guys with experience. I mean, he kind of fits that whole uh, storyline to the T. Yeah, and I mean, Grant thinks he's got him pushed back now at Milliken's Bend, where he's not going to do much. But McClernand, as we're going to see in the next episode, actually does keep being a bit of a shit disturber in this campaign in his own way. Um, but we'll see what happens to him eventually. Um, so the last part of this is Grant's Bayou Operations, which are January to March 1863. And these are basically just their expeditions and their attempts at canals to try and get around Vicksburg. And there is, um, there's one, there's Grant's Canal, Lake Providence, Yazoo Pass Expedition, Steel's Bayou, and Duckport Canal. And every single one fails. And this is what goes back to what Nick said about Grant being seen as kind of this stud in the, you know, when he comes east. But in the west at this time, like, this is very much Grant's trial by fire. You know, Shiloh was that way for Grant, but so is this part of Vicksburg, this engineering aspect and having to know the geography and how the Mississippi River works. And it never works in Grant's favor. Um, So you have Grant's Canal, which was the one that was started by Farragut that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode in 1862. And it's Sherman and his men that dig this canal, and they make it 60 feet wide and 7 feet deep in one day because of poor engineering and not knowing the hydrology of the Mississippi River. There's a sudden rise, and the canal fills with backwater, and they have to send in two dredges, the Hercules and the Samson. And... They get exposed to Confederate artillery, and I'm sure all of our listeners can guess what happened to them. So this was abandoned in late March. The next was Lake Providence, which um, Grant orders General McPherson to construct a canal several, several hundred yards from the Mississippi to Lake Providence to allow passage um, through various rivers and bayous. It's there is the ability to navigate it but only with ohio river boats which could only transport about 8500 troops at once and that's not enough to get what grant needs to where he needs the troops to be and then there's the yazoo pass expedition which is um you know nick mentioned this and um it's a joint effort between grant and porter so this is army and navy working together on this one And they're going to bypass the Confederate defenses using backwaters of the Mississippi Delta as a route from the Mississippi River to the Yazoo River. They're going to go deep into enemy territory in this, and it's dominated by water. And that's why cooperation between Army and Navy is so important. As the Union gunboats move through, though, the geography of the area gets in the way. 
low-hanging trees destroy anything above debt on the gunboats, and the Confederates also cut down trees to block the way. And the delay of Union boats allows rebels to construct what they will call, and this is really funny, Fort Pemberton, (laughs) which they will use to repulse the naval force on March 11th, 14th, and 16th. So this idea, and so this ends up getting abandoned too. Steel's Bayou also involves Admiral Porter, and um, it he again goes, he's trying to outflank Pemberton. The rebels again cut down trees. Willow Reeds get stuck in the paddle wheels of the boats, and they become totally immobilized, and they're threatened by Confederate cavalry and infantry. Sherman is sent to help, but the approach by Porter is abandoned. And the last one that they attempt is Duckport Canal. And the goal is to get lighter boats past Vicksburg. But by the time it's finished on April 6th, only light flat boats could get through because the water levels were so low. And again, this idea gets abandoned. So there's all this engineering that happens. None of it works. And Grant has to regroup because all of his efforts so far have failed to take Vicksburg. And Lincoln, Halleck, and Stanton are getting impatient. White, in his biography, um, A. Lincoln, tells us that Halleck had telegraphed Grant that the president was becoming impatient and continually asking questions about Grant's progress. And this is where we're going to leave you with the Vicksburg campaign. Cliffhanger. A nightmare for Grant there. It reminds me of a class, and Boyce taught this too, H&N. You have all this equipment, all these kids running around and i and i know when you taught it too you you try like a thousand different solutions to these issues of how to keep track of everybody all the equipment that's like the low-hanging branches and then i feel like i don't know how you felt teaching it but i don't know how many ideas i've thrown out there that have not been successful (laughs) in that class and it's just like keep chipping away at it and then go back to the drawing board i feel that's what Grant was doing here. This is yeah. time again. This is where I really realized that quote about Grant Dodd that that he's like a bulldog. Yeah. That does not let go. Mm-hmm. You know, he, this happens well, to him and he's like, screw it, I'll try something else. One one quote I used to like and I would talk about it, I don't know why I would compare it to teaching, but the the Dwight Eisenhower said around D Day was that Something along the lines of uh, the plan is everything before the battle and nothing during the battle. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um which I think is brilliant because like it's not like like in teaching that happens to us a lot. Like we plan the hell out of something and it just doesn't go the way we wanted it. And, and if you stick to the plan, it's it only gets worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. But you still had to have the plan because if you didn't have that plan, you, you know, like so that I agree that the plan and in this case too, the plan is everything. But if you if he had stuck to it or not been adaptive, of course it would have been a disaster. But if he didn't have such a good plan, perhaps they don't even get to where they needed to be or get to where they could have even been adaptive. So, But, I mean, Grant never seems to... He doesn't balk and he doesn't seem to be like, oh, I can't do this. I'm done. He's just like, whatever, go back to the drawing board. Yeah, the fact that he doesn't lose, like, I'm sure he had down moments, but the fact that he was able to pick himself up after that, huge. Yeah, and that's... That's a huge thing. And that it's... It's funny you mentioned plans, but... Like, I'm going to Chattanooga, hopefully, in a month. We're taking the electric vehicle, which is Jerry's. And he's got it all planned out, and it seems perfect, which I keep telling him, 
This is like Fredericksburg. It's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) But we're dependent on a couple of things. And one of them is pontoons, meaning the charging stations have to be working and not occupied. Dude, maybe since nobody will be at these battlefields, if school does get canceled for an extended time, maybe it's Civil War battlefield time for Stangy. Oh. I don't know if that's the responsible thing to do. But nobody's going to be at the battlefields, right? As long as it's less than 25, that's the number we're giving to Winnebago County. Up to over 25. Yeah. Over 25 what? 25 people or something. I think that was the vice that they gave. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. No more than 25 people can gather. No, so if I go to yep. Chili's and me and Kira go there, there's currently 24. Can only one of us go in? How's well, this going to be a force? I, I was on the phone with some some folks who make who make big decisions um and they're like well the county's policy is no more than 25 <laughs> and i'm like i have 100 rooms with more than 25 people in them right now like i'm in a building that has over 100 rooms with 30 people in them yeah like oh no no, no it's kids that does that's not what we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> we're not talking about educators or kids or healthcare workers everybody else nobody else can have 25 schools hospitals totally fine that's crazy. Wow. <laughs> That's good to know for me. Yeah. Just stand at your classroom door and that 23rd kid comes in and just be like, nope, no more. County says no more. You're going to have to find somewhere else to learn. <laughs> Go see Mr. Boyce. He'll put you somewhere. Yep. Yeah, that's right. I can take 23 more, 24 of you. So, <laughs> yeah, that's like where they got that number. Like, oh, man, I'm positive for coronavirus. Well, what did you expect? You were around 26 people. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, all right, I guess I'm hosting and I'm being lax here. So let's move on to our weekly features. Um, we, of course, have our Of the People, By the People, which um, came to us. Uh, or I have one that came to us. Is you okay if I'm, y'all okay if I take this yep. one? I came through email and it was amazing. Um, so we got um, a review which I will read to you um, from a listener who is awesome, like all of our listeners are, named Bjorn. Bjorn says, hey, Rail Splitters, first of all, thank you for a great podcast. Second, and he apologizes for his grammar and spelling, which, by the way, was perfect uh, because he's from Sweden and English is not his first language. Um, And he's not sure if we've seen our international reviews, and I don't think we have. No, Because he provided a screen grab which is like the coolest thing I've ever seen because it's in Swedish except for the review itself. Um, so like it's five comma zero because, you know, comma instead of a decimal. Yeah. And it's his review is really, really good. Recently started listening and I can't stop. Even for a Swede like me, Lincoln is one of the true great in history. This pod is both informative and funny, probably the way Lincoln would have wanted. Keep up the good work. So, Bjorn, that review is uh, means a lot to us, and we really appreciate it. We are a 5.0 podcast in Sweden, uh, which is super cool. And uh, I really, uh, really appreciated, you know, a review from across the pond. And I'll be honest, I was ignorant to the fact that they're even, you know, that iTunes, of course, exists differently in different countries. So we have <laughs> reviews, presumably in other countries, but definitely in Sweden, which was was awesome. Um, and he did have a question. I wasn't able to make the last uh the last show but uh, he did have a question on the last show he talked about what actors uh would play grant including leo dicaprio 
uh, which we totally agree. But the question of the day, the question of the hour, who would play Sherman? I was hoping you would ask this. Michael Fassbender. Wow. I like it. And I actually did a tweet about that a couple of years ago, and it was hashtag Fassbender for Sherman. Oh, nice. Dude, Fassbender is way too what he's way too good of an actor to play Shh. such a lonely, no, weak <laughs> role. Hush. This is not Fillmore. Are you talking about Fillmore? We should give it to uh, what's the guy from Seinfeld? Putty or what is it? LA's boyfriend. He's yeah, kind of Putty, deep... David Putty. No, yeah. Putty should not. That's Kronk from <laughs> Emperor's New Groove. Right. No, that's who I'm sticking with. Oh, no. Uh, I guess I'll go next. This one's kind of a sad one. Uh, David Kent just posted 12 hours ago. Mm. Um, Of course, with the coronavirus, Ford Theater had to regretfully cancel the Abraham Lincoln Institute Symposium. So for those of you who are bummed out about that, come listen here. We will give you the content. We'll probably know we're near as good at this content as you would have gotten at the symposium. <laughs> um, unless we invite any of the symposium <gasps> presenters to yes. come on the show, um, hit us up. So that way, um, you know, all your preparation doesn't necessarily go to the wayside. We'd be more than love to have you. Um, but no, we are bummed, but that's kind of where we're at right now with this thing. Um, and as he said on it, you know, definitely wash your hands, stay away from large crowds. Uh, especially if you're susceptible to, um, you know, illness right now. So, and to everybody who's bunkering down, uh, we'll, I, I think the plan here is to go weekly here for the next few weeks. Yep. So hopefully we can help you uh, through those stretches of maybe boredom. Um, and yeah, so hit us up on Twitter. Use Twitter. Join the Facebook page. Maybe we can get some more increased traffic there. Um, if some of us um, are asked to take an extended vacation from work, school, or whatever it may be. Um, so, yeah, let's help pass the time by talking about um, somebody who would have been great to ha- have leading us through this time, Mr. Lincoln himself. Yes. Although Boyce did bring a good point. He probably didn't understand germs because nobody did at that time. But anyways. <laughs> um, so mine is um, from... She's very active on our Facebook page, Andrea Annunziato, um, and she's a listener too. She posted, um, my kindergartner's homework. Y'all check out her fourth sentence. I must be doing something right. And the fourth sentence on her homework is, Abraham Lincoln was great. Dude. Kindergartners getting a lot of shout outs. Yeah, they are. The kids are getting, the next generation of Lincoln geeks is, uh, they're they're gonna happen, and they already know more than me. <laughs> and I do have a this week in Lincoln. If nobody else, all right, go it. for it. Okay, so I actually stole this one from actually it's a he was a guest Dave Weigers. I stole it from his uh, profile picture on Facebook, but it's quite appropriate for St. Patrick's Day, which is coming up. I think it's gonna be Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yep. So it's Abraham Lincoln with uh, a shamrock on his top hat and he's holding a beer which is funny because Lincoln did not drink four score and seven beers ago nice so there it is there I'm holding it up for the guys right now all right yeah great episode with David too 
Yes. Mm-hmm. A couple That's episodes awesome. back. All right. All right. So uh, thank you for tuning in and listening to the first half of our Vicksburg episode. The second half is coming at you probably in July. Uh, we got all kinds of content coming your way, so it should be a pretty exciting spring for us, especially uh, if we all stay healthy, which I hope you all do too. Uh, if you haven't reviewed us yet, please go on iTunes and give us a review, uh, whether you're from Sweden or any other country in this great on this great planet. Uh, and we'll try to read it on the air. So uh, for Rail Splitter Mary and Rail Splitter Nick, I am Rail Splitter Jeremy, reminding you to continue to walk the world with Miles Toward None. And Charity for All, we'll see you soon. <laughs>